0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny.
1: Yes! The following show would sound better from inside a public park, because today we are celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of Frederick Law Olmsted, America's most influential landscape architect, responsible for parks, parkways, and campuses across the country, from Brooklyn to Buffalo, Chicago to Palo Alto. He shaped the American landscape for public use by respecting and conforming to the ideals of natural beauty, even when, in reality, they were being carefully manipulated by human imagination. But today's story isn't of a great man at the height of his powers. This is the origin story of Olmsted at the start of his great career. A man who had never managed more than a simple farm before developing what would become the most influential park project in American history. This is the story of the man who built a park and the park that made the man. The Bowery Boys Episode 385, Young Olmstead and the Plan for Central Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. I'm alone again, but Tom will be back on the show for the next episode, where we'll be embarking on another history road trip to a region outside the city limits. So which direction do you think we'll go this year? Upstate? Pennsylvania? New Jersey? Tune in next episode and find out. But for today, it's all about Frederick Law Olmstead. Who, with the architect Calvert Vox, designed two of New York's greatest public places, Central Park and Prospect Park, as well as many other green spaces in the New York City Park System. Now later on the show today, I'll be joined by former New York City Parks Commissioner Adrian Benape to discuss Olmsted's legacy. But first, let's go back to the year 1822, the year that Frederick Law Olmsted was born. What was New York like back then? The city had a population of about 125,000 people, and almost all of them lived in Lower Manhattan. Although over a decade earlier, back in 1811, a commission of urban planners devised a system of streets and avenues that would utilize the entire island for future habitation. There were very few parks, per se, In 1822 New York, there was no urgency, when much of Upper Manhattan was still very undeveloped. The wealthy went off to their country estates with their wide vistas and bucolic scenes that they could enjoy privately. Everyone else could enjoy a stroll along the Battery at the very tip of the island, and nearby was Bowling Green, considered New York's oldest park. By 1825, it would be sodded with grass, and bothersome youth would soon appear riding contraptions called draisines, precursors to the bicycle. New Yorkers could also enjoy a private pleasure garden. For a fee, places such as Vauxhall Gardens near today's Astor Place, influenced by English formal gardens with manicured shrubbery, lovely music, and light refreshment. If you wanted to go to an open space but didn't want to pay, one could always stroll through a church cemetery or the pauper's field up in the area known as Greenwich Village. In 1822, still anchored by Mineta Creek, its years as Washington Square, still many years in the future. Otherwise, you just got in your carriage and took the road out of town and you know, looked for a bucolic spot, as long as it wasn't private property. These were your options if you were looking for a little green in New York City in 1822. But the man who would help change that would not be in New York for many, many years. So to start this tale, we actually need to go north of the city to an old Puritan settlement, which was one of New England's most prosperous cities, Hartford, Connecticut, and to one of its founding families by the name of Olmstead. Frederick Law Olmsted was born on April 26, 1822, to a wealthy Hartford merchant, John Olmsted, and his wife Charlotte. Less than four years later, his brother John Jr. was born. When the boy's mother Charlotte died, his father remarried, and the family grew exponentially, with many more brothers and sisters. As a result, Frederick and John Jr. had a unique brotherly bond of shared experience. But Father Olmstead and his new wife Marianne did instill in the boys an appreciation for the purity and quietude of nature on family expeditions into the countryside, bathing in a country stream or picnicking in a blossoming meadow. When Fred was 14 years old, he developed a terrible eye infection due to exposure to the plant Poison Sumac. Although he would eventually recover, it left him so far behind in schooling that Olmsted never pursued a more formal education. Instead, his adventures as a young man would be defined by his idealism, some would say flightiness, as he leapt from one profession to the next. At 18 years old, his father sent him to New York City to work for a dry goods importing firm. Every day, he commuted to work from Brooklyn Heights via the ferry to lower Manhattan to a job he quickly found suffocating. So then he impulsively decided to become a sailor, spending a year on the high seas aboard the China-bound trading vessel Ronaldson. He was greatly relieved to be back in America by 1844. According to the author Kenneth McFarland, It was hoped this voyage might benefit his eyes and strengthen his constitution in general. The China trip, however, exposed Olmstead to a life that must have previously been unimaginable. Intense seasickness joined his disgust with a greatly overloaded ship and an abusive captain. Conditions grew so bad on the return to New York that the crew almost mutinied. Olmsted would later become a renowned travel writer, but his sailing life was not to be. Olmsted next turned his attentions to the pursuit of farming not an uncommon direction for a young man in mid-19th century America, of course, but certainly unusual for a son of a merchant from an urban New England enclave. In 1846, Olmsted went to work on a model farm in western New York, owned by George Geddes, whose father James had helped plan the Erie Canal. On Getty's 300-acre farm in Fairmount, New York, Olmsted learned the basics of agriculture and animal husbandry, followed every evening by lively and heated conversation-filled dinners at the Getty's Stone Manor House. This was a life that Olmsted now craved. His father John soon set up Fred on a small Connecticut farm along the Long Island Sound that quickly proved inadequate. He wanted to go bigger and bolder. And so in 1848, Fred's father set him up on another property, 125 acres on Staten Island. Now in 1848, there were less than 15,000 people living on this future borough of New York. And agriculture was the dominant way of life. Olmsted's new farm sat on the waterfront facing into Raritan Bay. At night, Olmsted could see the light from the Sandy Hook Lighthouse in the distance, while looking out the window from the old Dutch farmhouse, which he now called home. Fred was a project-oriented man and set right to work in transforming a tired old wheat farm into a fertile producer of fruits and vegetables. He gave his property an appropriately romantic name, Tossamock Farm, and set out reworking the land— with the help of hired Irish laborers. Tossamach became his first sculpted landscape with hundreds of imported trees, pear, ginkgo, mulberry, and cedars, and a rich variety of crops. He designed a curved driveway and scenic ponds and drained the surrounding marshes to create a more picturesque environment. By this period, many of Olmsted's neighbors were prominent New York businessmen drawn by Staten Island's charming rural qualities. Men like publisher George Putnam and the retired doctor Cyrus Perkins. Frederick's brother John became enamored of Perkins' daughter Mary. John and Mary would become husband and wife in 1851. For his part, Fred fancied several different women during this period but could not find the time for courtship. He was too busy farming. By 1849, he was elected secretary of the Richmond County Agricultural Society and would later write extensively about the romantic toil of agriculture. He later said, quote, For the matter of happiness, there is no body of men that are half as well satisfied with their business as our farmers. You could say Olmsted loved being a gentleman farmer, but he didn't really love farming. He grew tired of it. In 1850, when John and his friend Charles Loring Brace Planned a walking tour of the English countryside, Fred leapt at the chance to join them on the ship across the Atlantic. The trio spent several months exploring English cities and country estates. Most notably, they stopped in Liverpool to look at the recently opened Birkenhead Park, a revolutionary space unusual for its rugged natural features and its openness to the general public. Olmsted later wrote, quote, All this magnificent pleasure ground is entirely, unreservedly, and forever the people's own. The poorest British peasant is as free to enjoy all its parts as the British Queen. Unquote. This visit to Liverpool would prove to be a touchstone moment for Olmsted. Back in America, Olmsted sought further distraction from his farm. His neighbor, George Putnam, hired him to write a book on his wanderings abroad called Walks and Talks of an American Farmer in England. Now, this was not great literature, but the book finds Olmsted thinking about landscape in a philosophical way for the very first time. He also sought out writing work at Horticulturalist magazine, whose editor was the preeminent landscape designer Andrew Jackson Downing. Now, Downing was a leading influence on American home design in a period when the young country was not really well known for its architects. For more information, see our recent show on Richard Morris Hunt, episode 382. Among his contributions to American domestic life was his development of the front porch as a key component of house design, which Downing championed as a link between home and nature. During one particular visit to Downing's home in Newburgh, New York, Olmsted briefly met Downing's assistant, a young London-based architect named Calvert Vox. But this initial introduction made little impression upon either of them. These writing exercises only proved to Fred that really, he actually wanted to be a journalist, not a farmer. In 1852, he was hired by the publisher of a new startup newspaper called the New York Daily Times. They would eventually lose the word daily in its name. They hired Olmstead to tour the American South and report back with dispatches on the region's economic stability. In other words, its system of plantations and slave labor. At his Staten Island farm, Olmstead had hosted prominent Abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison. But Fred never really saw himself as part of that movement until his tour of the antebellum South, where he saw both the abject cruelty of the slave system and the moral and economic degradation that system had on all aspects of Southern society. And these writings, too, would also become a book called A Journey in the Seaboard Slave States. In 1855, Fred gave Tossamock Farm over to his brother John and his new wife Mary, then moved into Manhattan to become an editor and part-owner of his neighbor George Putnam's eponymous magazine. Despite not having much of a formal education, he excelled in the social aspects of the job, befriending several men of letters, both here in New York and across the pond. These skills, however, were unable to save Putnam's magazine in 1857 in the wake of a devastating financial panic which bankrupted the magazine and left Olmsted in serious debt by the summer. What was Frederick Law Olmsted to do now? He was 35 years old, unmarried, weary of the shifting fortunes of the publishing world, and too proud to return to the farm. Well, he headed back to Connecticut in August of 1857, where he met up with an acquaintance named Charles Elliott for a spot of tea. Elliott had a job offer. He asked, Have you heard of this new project in New York, this new Central Park? They're looking for a superintendent, and perhaps you'd like to apply. When I return, Frederick Law Olmsted and the plan...
0: Slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams.
1: This episode is brought to you by For the Ages, a podcast from the New York Historical Society. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast featuring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. You'll learn about the great influenza from historian John Barry. Why did they call it the Spanish flu when it didn't start in Spain? What did the Spanish call it? You'll be surprised at what people were told to do to protect themselves from the virus. And in Cover Story, Catherine Graham's CEO... Mr. Rubenstein interviews the children of Katherine Graham to learn how a woman with no business experience became one of the top female business leaders, what effect Truman Capote's famous black-and-white ball had on her, and they discuss her decision-making process when publishing the Pentagon Papers. In The Man Who Ran Washington, New York Times Chief White House Correspondent Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, a staff writer at The New York Times, discussed the life and legacy of James Baker, one of the most influential power brokers in American history. That's For the Ages from the New York Historical Society, available on Apple and Spotify. New episodes every week. By the 1850s, New York City was in a crisis. The population had grown tenfold since the 1820s, and it would number over one million residents by the year 1860. Fresh water finally came to the city now, thanks to the Croton Aqueduct, and 70 miles of sewer were laid by the year 1855, but modernity was still very slow to arrive here. New York was rapidly growing northward, but transportation still proved very inadequate. And worse of all, adequate open space for this growing population was scarce. You had small parks like Washington Square and Tompkins Square by this time, which gave New Yorkers in crowded neighborhoods some breathing room. But it wasn't enough. Many prominent New Yorkers worried more about their reputation Angling in every way by this time to emulate the fineries of a European city, people wondered how New York would ever be taken seriously if it didn't have something like, you know, London's Hyde Park or Paris's Tuileries Garden. The closest that New York had to such a monumental open space was in Brooklyn. Greenwood Cemetery had opened in 1838, a rural cemetery which served both as a final resting place for prominent New Yorkers and a recreation ground for picnics and contemplation. But cemeteries, lovely as they were, were not going to solve this problem. William Bryant had sounded the alarm as early as 1844 in his newspaper, The New York Evening Post, lamenting that the city's rapid growth would consume all of Manhattan's available land before the city acted to produce a respectable public park. Later, it was horticulturalist and architect Andrew Jackson Downing who led the charge. In 1850, he wrote, quote, What are called parks in New York are not even apologies for the thing. They are only squares or paddocks. Most believed it would be Downing who would design such a park for the city, That is, if they ever got around to commissioning it. The message had finally reached City Hall. And in 1851, the newly elected Mayor Ambrose Kingsland and the Common Council finally reached an agreement. And then they secured support from state government to construct a new park on 160 acres along the eastern side of Manhattan, around today's 61st Street, in an area called Jones Wood, a densely forested area that had become a popular picnic spot with sporting venues and a beer garden. But Downing considered this site way too small, advocating for something three times the size and more centrally located. We can only guess what he may have given New York in terms of a great park. On July 28, 1852, Downing, along with 80 other people, were killed on the Hudson River in the explosion of the steamship Henry Clay. Dreadful calamity on the Hudson, proclaimed the New York Times, a heart-rending catastrophe which has filled the city with gloom. Downing's body was recovered from the river two days later. His assistant, Calvert Fox, grief-stricken and in shock, was there to identify him. In a belated turn of events, the following year, Downing's long-desired dream was realized when a central park was deemed preferable, comprising a rocky and not particularly inspiring terrain bounded by 59th Street on the south side, 106th to the north, and 5th and 8th avenues on the eastern and western sides. The new park would envelop a receiving reservoir for the city's Croton water supply, and a larger reservoir would eventually be built also within this park. Although this was undesirable terrain, many people were already living and working in this area. The homes of Irish immigrants and most notably Seneca Village, a settlement for about 225 black residents. All of these settlements were leveled by 1857, its residents evicted. Everything back then was political, perhaps even more so than today. The political process and the city at this time was controlled by Democrats, while the state government was mostly Republicans, which was a fairly new party in the 1850s, rising from the ashes of the Whig Party. Not the ashes of actual Whigs, the Whig Party. By 1856, that rapscallied New York mayor Fernando Wood personally oversaw a commission for the Central Park and hired a Democrat-friendly civil engineer named Egbert Villet to both design the park and then oversee its construction. But the following year, the state of New York set up a formal board of commissioners, mostly Republican-friendly, which more or less diffused the power of Mayor Wood's city commission. And this board, the state board, had a very notable Republican advisor, Calvert-Vox. Now, the park plan by Egbert Villet, a rather unimaginative vision with no creativity in using the area's natural terrain, was, to put it bluntly, the work of an engineer, but not a designer and not an artist. Calvert-Vox was appalled It was a poor imitation of the work of Andrew Jackson Downing, the man Vox considered the true visionary of such landscapes. In fact, Vox was repulsed. He later said, quote, Being thoroughly disgusted with the manifest defects of Villay's design, I pointed out whenever I had the chance that it would be a disgrace to the city and to the memory of Downing to have this plan carried out. Keeping in mind the political undercurrents to all of this, Vox enlisted his good friend, Charles Elliott, who was a former associate of Downing and a member of the state board here. Okay, He enlisted him to help convince the rest of the committee not to execute the valet plan, but instead open it up to a competition to allow the architects and garden designers and urban planners of the world to have a say in designing this, what would certainly be the most grand of all public spaces in the United States. Vox succeeded in destroying the Lay's plan. As a consolation prize, Valet would be allowed to stay on as the engineer-in-chief of the park, provided that a new position of superintendent be created. A job that would be filled by this Republican state board, but would report to Valet. And this is where Frederick Law Olmsted comes back into the story. For on that balmy afternoon in Connecticut in August of 1857, Olmstead was having tea with Charles Elliot, that Downing-loving state board member who had conspired with Calvert Fox. Elliot suggested Olmstead apply for the job of superintendent of the Central Park Building Project, managing a crew of hundreds and clearing away the land for a plan which, of course, had not yet been determined. Due to Fred's unconventional career path here, outside the regular political mechanisms from the farm to the printing press, Eliot thought that Olmstead would appeal to the city's democratic decision-makers, Olmstead wanted the job. He threw himself into this opportunity, rushing back to New York and compiling a stunning recommendation letter, a petition, really, with the signatures of almost 200 important men, including the son of Alexander Hamilton and the writer Washington Irving. It made him seem almost too socially connected, actually. Thankfully, he did get the job, though, at a salary of $1,500 a year, or about $45,000 today. He immediately rubbed Villet the wrong way. But Olmsted would eventually win over the team, and he also very quickly became familiarized with this rough and eccentric landscape. Just a few weeks into his job, in November of 1857, Olmsted received a devastating letter from his brother, who was convalescing from illness in France. Quote, dear, dear Fred, it appears we are not to see one another anymore. I never have known a better friendship than ours has been, and there can't be a greater happiness than to think of that, how dear we have been and how long we have held out such tenderness. On November 24, 1857, John Olmsted died of tuberculosis. He had long been sick, and in their last days together, Fred promised his brother that he would make sure that his wife Mary and their children would be well taken care of. In his terrible grief, Fred now threw himself entirely into the Central Park construction. Pretending to the park's jagged, rocky outcroppings and wet marshes reminded him of his Staten Island farm and of happier times with his traveling companion and his best friend. At this darkest moment for Olmstead, however, came a life-changing opportunity by way of Calvert Vox. Vox had convinced the commissioners to hold a contest for the design of Central Park, but now how could he win the contest? He needed the upper hand. Fortunately, he had heard a rumor that the topographic maps drawn by Vallée were severely flawed. So to win the contest meant to find somebody on the ground, so to speak, somebody with intimate knowledge of the proposed parkland. That somebody, of course, was Frederick Law Olmsted. Vox approached Olmsted and asked if he would be willing to collaborate on a design now, they had briefly met at Downing's Newburgh home many years ago, so Vox knew Fred was a follower of Downing's aesthetic. Olmsted, however, he flinched at first. Valet, after all, was his supervisor. However, he could really use a part of that $2,000 cash prize that came with the winning design entry. And as I hope that you have surmised by now in this story, Frederick Law Olmsted loved a challenge and so and we don't know the exact date really but in the late fall of 1857 Olmsted and vox became partners they had only the winter to essentially create one of the most ambitious park developments in history and it could only be worked on during the evenings after their regular work duties were over On cold winter's nights, Olmsted led Vox over the landscape, both men on horseback, observing quirks and imperfections of the ground, which could be improved, and natural rock formations that could be incorporated into a larger design. But the bulk of their work, however, took place at Vox's home at 138 East 18th Street, just south of a very different kind of park, Gramercy Park, a fenced-in green space for the neighborhood's elite. What would manifest upon Vox's 10-foot-long drawing boards late into the early hours of the night would be an entirely different concept from Gramercy Park. Olmsted drew upon his experiences of land usage, of course, his English travels and his hard-tilled farmland, but also the social reform ideals of his brother and his friend, Charles Loring Brace, who had become a major New York reformer by this time, and the founder of the Children's Aid Society. The Central Park would present romantic natural vistas that encouraged contemplation. Trees would be instrumental, thousands of them, a radical idea in the 1850s, and one Olmsted was most comfortable with, having fostered a tree nursery back at his Staten Island farm. Because the rectangular shape of this central park proved a bit unwieldy, Olmsted proposed diagonal paths to get visitors lost inside the park as quickly as possible. Then perimeter trees would enfold the entire space as a kind of natural fence. Now, Olmsted and Vox would submit their park design as a single vision, but we can guess as to what their individual contributions were. Vox was a master of formal, domestic architecture, and places like the Mall, with its elegant pathways, and the structure that would later be known as Bethesda Terrace, seemed to be taken from the plans of elegant English manor houses. But buildings that were obviously man-made were to be secondary. As Vox later said of their priorities, quote, nature first, second, and third, architecture after a while the star of the show was green space and that was Olmsted's domain their final design would be called the greensward plan greensward being a late middle-aged term for land teeming with green grass unencumbered swaths of green where people could sit sleep and stare at the sky were essential from the report quote Townspeople appear to find, in broad spaces of the Greensward, the most exhilarating contrast to the walled-in floors or pavements to which they were ordinarily confined by their business. The park was designed for the modern city of the mid-19th century, and it was designed for the future city. Four roads would eventually cut into the park, but would be sunk eight feet below park level and blocked by fences and hedges. Over the years, these roads would service horse and carriages, and then automobiles. Decades of technological evolution tucked out of view, a grand illusion which allowed the city to grow up around the Central Park unhindered. Central Park is such a facet of New York City and its influence has spread to public parks all over the world that we've become numb to its innovation, the absolute sophistication of seemingly effortless space. And yet we almost didn't have it because they were almost late. Their elaborate presentation with illustrative boards, before and after images, and detailed written descriptions – were not done by the afternoon of the deadline, March 31st, 1858. But finally, with everything in place, the pair raced uptown from Vox's Gramercy Park home to the Arsenal building, a munitions building which actually sits in the park today. It's near the Central Park Zoo, which of course was not a feature of anybody's plans. Well, by the time they got to the Arsenal, the doors were locked, They were actually too late. And so we have to thank the caretaker at the Arsenal for his contributions to the future of the public park system, for seeing the two desperate men pounding at the door. The caretaker let them in, and the plans were actually left with him. And at last submitted the 33rd of 33 submissions for the design of the Central Park. Now, the other plans were clever, I suppose. One shaped open spaces like continents. One featured a gigantic pyramid. Most of them were loaded with fountains because, you know, New York had water finally thanks to the Croton Aqueduct. So you got to show it off. But no plan could touch the Greensward plan for its ravishing beauty and its clever natural mechanics. Olmsted and Vox won the design competition, with seven out of 11 commissioners giving their approval. Olmsted was considered a Wunderkind at age 36, an adoring story for the press of the day. And keep in mind, Olmsted was a journalist also. The papers loved that. Because of his job as superintendent, Olmsted was then promoted to architect in chief. Calvert Vox reported to Olmsted. Technically, his assistant, Egbert Villay, was let go. The park would take many years to complete and would, of course, see many alterations over the years. Most notably, its expansion up to 110th Street. But its first section would open on December 1st, 1858. The ice skating pond. And Olmstead's life would soon change in another way. Fred married his brother's widow, Mary. On June 1st, 1859, in a ceremony in Central Park, he adopted John and Mary's three children, his niece and nephews, and then the couple would go on to produce two more children together. Neither Olmsted or Vox would stay for the park's completion. Fred frequently clashed with the park's commissioner, Andrew Haswell Green, who we have an entire podcast about, that's episode 300. During the Civil War, Olmsted was put in charge of the U.S. Sanitary Commission for tending sick and wounded soldiers and then left for California to open a gold mine. But he was soon lured back to New York, thanks to passionate entreaties by Calvert Fox, to work on a sequel to Central Park for the growing city of Brooklyn. That project, Prospect Park, was completed in 1873 it would prove to be their favorite project together. Olmsted and Vox would actually work on several New York parks together, but some of his greatest work can actually be found in places across the country, from Niagara Falls to Yosemite National Park, from Boston's Emerald Necklace to several American college campuses. In 1895, Frederick Law Olmsted retired, but his two sons kept the business alive. John Charles Olmsted and Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., John and Fred. The Olmsted brothers cemented their father's reputation as America's preeminent landscape architect. On November 19, 1895, his longtime business partner, Calvert Fox, died in a tragic accident near his son's home in Gravesend Bay, Brooklyn. Today's Calvert-Vox Park, which is near the spot where he perished, serves as a tribute to Vox's commitment to civic spaces. And on August 28, 1903, Frederick Law Olmsted died in Waverly, Massachusetts. From his New York Times obituary, quote, It is he who may be said to have created the title of landscape architect now so worthily borne by so many younger men. And from the Boston Evening Transcript, quote, The debt which America owed to him is large, but his monuments are everywhere in this country where art and beauty have been combined in landscape. This month marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of Frederick Law Olmsted, and celebrations are being held across the country as part of the Olmsted 200 initiative. Now, to get a sense of his legacy, a few days ago, I sat down with a member of the Honorary Committee, Adrian Benapi, who just so happens to be the former New York City Parks Commissioner under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and he's also the president of Brooklyn Botanic Garden, one of my favorite places in the entire city, and its original grounds were actually designed, believe it or not, by the Olmsted brothers. When I arrived, Adrian showed me around the Olmstead section of the garden, then we headed into his office within the garden's administration building, designed by McKim Meaden-White. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences with with the Olmsted New York properties? Of course, Central Park and Prospect Park, and of course the New York Parks System in general.
2: Yeah, you know, I have a lifelong affiliation with the Olmsted Parks of New York, both personally and professionally. Raised in on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, spent my childhood in juvenile delinquency in Riverside Park and Central Park, and then um, both as a high school student and later, right after college and even during college, had jobs in or around the Parks Department. And then right after college, got a job as an urban park ranger. That began a career at the New York City Parks Department, which culminated later as New York City Parks Commissioner for 11 years under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, uh, with lots of stops in between. I also worked at the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx for three years. I worked at the Municipal Arts Society for a year and a half. Then after leaving New York City Parks, spent eight years at a national nonprofit organization called the Trust for Public Land, working... Nationally on urban park issues, where I came to really know some of the Olmsted parks outside of New York, and then a year and a half ago, exactly, um, I came to Brooklyn Botanic Garden as their seventh president. So you know a thing or two about parks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> not, it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> By the way, so. I'm, um,
1: I saw some pictures of you in your ranger's outfit. Ranger outfit. Um, those were some. Those were some looks back then. I they loved were, it. They're great. <laughs>
2: we had wool pants and wool pants in the summer is not pleasant <laughs> in New York. <laughs> so you had the cool smoky bear hats or so you wore green wool pants.
1: Can you tell me just a maybe let's go through a brief history of the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, because it does have a very significant Olmstead connection, although perhaps one that people would not quite guess initially.
2: It's uh, connected. It's Olmstead once removed, shall we mm-hmm. say. Um, so, all my life, you know, really becoming somewhat of an expert on Olmsted parks, I thought there were eight Olmsted landscapes in New York City. Between you know, seven of those by Olmsted and Vaux, and one by the Olmsted Brothers, which was the inheritor firm. I was wrong. I came here to Brooklyn Botanic Garden and found on this wall, which is right to my left, we're looking at it, the 1911 Olmsted Brothers plan for Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's even signed in the corner by Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. It's stamped and dated and all that. And what we see is essentially the garden of today, minus the southern end and the northern piece that sticks out next to the museum. But essentially the, the design that we see hanging on a wall, springing from the brains of the Olmsted brothers, was built. And you can see the cherry esplanade there. You can see the stairs of the museum that never expanded fully out. You can see the pond that later became the centerpiece of the Japanese Hill and Pond Garden. You can see the plant family collection and the whole basic combination of sort of a rustic pastoral landscape with a little bit of Beaux-Arts because we're sort of in the Beaux-Arts era here.
1: So this is just a portion, of course, of what the park is today, but it Looks pretty much like it kind of does today, right? I mean, like you compare it to Central Park, for instance, where there's been a lot of changes in Central Park in the past, you know, 150 years or whatever. So, but this looks fairly, you know, like almost the same.
2: Yeah, if you think of landscapes, park landscapes in New York and elsewhere as palimpsest, that is a thing on which you write, erase and write again. There's been a lot more erasing and writing again on places like Prospect Park and Central Park. You have to... The bones are there, but sometimes they're hidden. Sometimes they've been broken, badly broken, with the imposition of 20th century structures like skating rinks and ball fields and things that were not part of the original design. Mm -hmm. That never happened here. Later landscape architects, including contemporaries, our contemporaries, like Michael Van Valkenburg, have made subtle changes to the landscape, rerouted streams, recontoured certain areas, but the essential bones and most of the flesh of the Olmsted brothers' landscape is here. Of course, the Olmsted brothers... Were the son and uh, nephew of Frederick Law Olmsted. Why did they become Olmsted brothers? Good question. <laughs> Olmsted's brother died, leaving behind his widow who Olmsted who was not married was obliged to marry. That was what you did in those days. So he married and his nephew became his stepson and they what used to be cousins became stepbrothers. So that's why it's called the Olmsted Brothers firm and they went on to work by themselves or their people who ran the firm until the 1960s. So the the Olmsted name was around for about 100 years designing parks and landscapes.
1: I'd actually like to talk a little bit about the major contributions that Frederick Law Olmsted made especially here in brooklyn that aren't necessarily what you would consider a regular park i mean like essentially parkways because that is a sort of a different way to interact with the city and bring out what a park is to the to the rest of the city so what were some of those changes that he did or some some of those inventions that he he brought
2: well the the just the name parkway is an olmstead he invented that name and I'm not sure whether it's because it connected parks, it was a way to connect parks, or it was a way that was park-like. And it was both, really. So you've got Eastern Parkway and Ocean Parkway, both Olmsted and Vaux inventions. And if you think about them, they invented multimodal transportation and separated modes of traffic. In those days, it was horse carriages or oxen carriages on the main Mm -hmm. roadways, equestrians, people riding horses. Bicycles and pedestrians, each on its own separate path. So this idea of protected bike paths being a 21st century concept, not at all. It was an 1880s concept, and the very first bike path in America was invented as bicycles are being invented and mass-produced for the very first time. So the first protected bike path in America is on Ocean Parkway or maybe Eastern Parkway, I forget which is first. And
1: it sounds extremely obvious to say out loud, but it it should be clear that like when when. Olmsted was designing these parks. They they were there were they were all for horse and carriage,
2: like at best, yes. right? Yes. So the, the Central Park Drive, the Prospect Park drives, were built as carriage drives, mm-hmm. and so they they were not cambered to um, have people driving sixty miles an hour on them. You fast forward into the nineteen sixties and seventies, you've got three lanes of traffic, and people driving fifty miles an hour. I remember as a park ranger in Central Park. Finding an automobile engine in the water body known as the pool near West 103rd Street, because someone had clearly come flying off that bridge there and landed in the pool and all that was left was the engine. So cars used to crash all the time because those roadways were designed for people going 10, 15, 20 miles an hour in a carriage, not going 60 miles an hour in a taxi.
1: Not to mention what that kind of exhaust does
2: to the natural beauty of those types of parks. Well, they, they essentially destroyed the parks. I will tell you, it's not well known, but my father was one of the sort of guerrilla resistor pioneers in the 1960s who led um, actions to get Central Park closed to traffic one Sunday afternoon a month in the summertime. Like, can oh, we just? Yeah. So he, <laughs> he, in 1966, and some collaborators who had gone to for, form transportation alternatives, led public protests where they get on bicycles and block traffic and say, we need this park back <laughs> for people. And then he, I'm happy to say he's still alive. He's almost 94. He lived to see the day when the last car was thrown out of central park and was turned over full time back to recreational users. It,
1: it eventually happened. It took a while, but it took, 40, his- <laughs> it
2: took the better part of 50 uh-huh. years. Uh, we're here because we're celebrating Frederick law
1: Olmstead's the anniversary of his birth 200 years ago. What do you think every American, not just New Yorkers, because he built everywhere, what do you think every American should know about Olmstead? And why do you think it's really important to mark his 200th anniversary? Like, What will, what should we be remembering when we remember him?
2: Well, the interesting um, sort of co- contrast. The first of all, even though he's you know, labeled the father or grandfather of a landscape architect, he was never trained as a landscape architect. He was not trained as an architect. He had zero professional training in this realm. He was a philosopher, he was a visualizer, he was an ideas man, he worked on. He directed something called the Sanitary Commission during the Civil War, trying to create more sanitary conditions so that people would not die of disease once they got wounded. You know, there's an interesting accident of history, which is that we would not know the name Olmsted, in my opinion, if the side wheeler Henry Clay had not caught fire in the Hudson River, killing Andrew Jackson Downing who was, in fact, the leading landscape architect who had brought calvert Vaux to this country to be his partner designing estates in the Hudson River Valley, and who died in that accident. That was right before the competition for Central Park. Frederick Law Olmsted was merely the groundskeeper clearing the landscape to build the park. I believe, other people may disagree, that had Downing not died, Downing and Vaux would have designed the winning competition for Central Park, and it would have been Downing and Vaux forever, and Olmsted would have been an asterisk. Olmsted worked on so many things throughout the United
1: States, but of course, his collaborations with Calvert Fox remain some of them his most famed projects. What was it about these two people together that they were able to make things that are so classic and that have changed American landscape history and American urban life? What was the kind of the unique working relationship between these two? Do you well, think?
2: They, they had. Contrasting skills and personality traits, so you know they, it was yin yin and yang. One man's mm-hmm. strength was the other man's weakness, but they both were visionaries. They could see things in the future. They could look into the future. And they could look at the landscape, and you know, there's the great English landscape architect who's kind of the father of romantic landscapes, Capability Brown. And Capability Brown got the nickname Capability because he'd look. He'd be hired by some lord in England to transform this landscape into this romantic pleasure ground and say, my lord, this land has great capability. Like, I can see the future of this. So Olmsted and Valk could look at this really sort of awful piece of land in the middle of Manhattan that had been set aside by the state legislature through eminent domain and say, this land has great capability. And they did before and after pictures. This swamp will become a lake, and we'll blast this out with dynamite and put bridges here, and we'll create a romantic woodland there, and we'll have a pastoral meadow here and there. It was, it was all built on the romantic notions of romantic paintings, of mm-hmm. the rustic, the, the picturesque, the pastoral, and so on. These are based on romantic-era paintings, and they were, in my mind, they were creating 19th century Disneyland's. These were not natural landscapes. These were very <laughs> artificial landscapes with drainage pipes and water pipes and they would bring in exotic plants, some of which were invasive and exotic animals, peacocks wandering the landscape and Moorish temples and castles and all kinds of, you know, if they had had the, the technology, there would probably be animatronic animals floating mm-hmm. around, right? Just like it would be. And I, I do believe that Walt Disney was doing Olmstead at a two third scale. <laughs> what he did, like Sleeping Beauty yeah. Castle and all the water and stuff. Um, it is true that
1: when you walk, like, for instance, there are areas of Prospect Park with those little waterfalls and everything where you can, for a moment, just think, Am I in Yosemite? Yeah. You know, I mean, they're, but they're completely fabrications. They're, they're, they're
2: fabrications. The, the water is coming from pipe fed by a faucet. These waterfalls in the north end of Central Park and the ravine in Prospect Park are completely artificial. Every boulder placed artificially. Now, they were working within the geographic confines of what had happened, you know, with the glaciers 15,000 years ago, but they were definitely contouring the landscape and they were creating a fantasy. They were creating a fantasy of the Adirondacks, Mm -hmm. a fantasy of English landscapes. And once that fantasy was no longer maintained, it just fell apart really quickly in in the 60s and 70s. And it was not just that it was not maintained, it was not respected. They said, oh, Mm -hmm. this flat area... We'll make turn that into ball fields or this pond. That's a great place for you know a uh, skating rink. And there was so little respect for both this, the structures and the landscapes that they were they almost vanished. They came very close to vanishing, you know, forever.
1: You know, with his work spanning decades, what would you say was a defining principle of Olmsted and his landscape architecture? Yeah,
2: there were two. One is social, and the other is is more physical or visual. The social. He was very much interested in the idea of creating an earthly paradise for working people.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, There's a lot of things written about this, many quotes about how this should be for for one day, I'm paraphrasing one day for a working person, like a rich person spending a month in the Catskills, right? Who's Mm -hmm. trying to create the country in the city, this artifice that would allow working people to come from the slums of the Lower East Side to Central Park and experience natural beauty just by riding a streetcar, very democratic impulses, with a small d, very interested in poor people out having access to the health benefits of nature. He understood in an innate way that which we understand now about how trees absorb carbon, how they absorb pollution, how they give oxygen, mm-hmm. and understood that the city could not be healthy unless there were vast green spaces. They didn't build enough of them. Imagine if they hadn't had the chutzpah to take away 840 acres of Manhattan to buy it up and turn it into Central Park to do the same thing in Prospect Park and then other parks that were not Olmstedian but certainly instead are inspired by Olmsted and Vaux and I would say that you know the the idea of the great public park is born by Olmsted and Vaux. Yes, people say that the park in Liverpool was the first kind of great public park but it was actually part of a real estate speculation. They wanted a park so they could develop housing next to it, the same way that Washington Square Park was part of a real estate speculation. Mm -hmm. It was not, hey, let's build a great public park for the masses. And remember that prior to that, all the public parks in Europe were simply royal pleasure grounds that had been turned over to the public after they kind of started to get rid of the kings and queens. They were not purposely designed to be public parks. They were yeah. private preserves turned over to the public. It was always afterthought, kind yes. of, right? So this, the first great purpose-built public park, in my view, is Central Park. And then every city looks at that and says, we want a Central Park. Mm-hmm. He was so busy. I mean, you, you're just overwhelmed when you look at his biography or you, you know, you read a book on him. And imagine, he was, he was not flying to these cities to do this work. Olmsted uh, legendarily was invited out to San Francisco to create their big central park, which eventually became Golden Gate Park. He took one look at this pile of sand dunes and said, you'll never grow anything here, (laughs) and went back to New York on his five-day train trip. Luckily, there was a Scottish engineer, McLaren, who said, I think I have an idea about how to do this. And he figured out how to grow things and then plant grasses into the sand dunes. And then that's the one great urban park in America of that era, not designed by Olmsted, is Golden Gate Park. Uh, I
1: know you're biased towards New York, but I must ask: like, what is your favorite Olmsted project outside of New York State that still exists? That's, that's something that people could visit, obviously. The World's Fair grounds would probably be pretty great, but that's not there. But anything else that people Well, you know, there's,
2: there's still a lot of Olmstead legacy, Lincoln Park and Grant Park in Chicago. So I think if you're looking for a great sort of run of Olmstead landscapes, Chicago's great. Buffalo, two-thirds of the park system there is by Olmstead. Hmm. Uh, and then, of course, you know the great secret repository of Olmstead landscapes is Louisville, Kentucky. Just outstanding parks, You know, some that look like Central Park, some that look you know, a little bit more modern.
1: Did he envision the city growing up over parks in the way that they did, especially with Central
2: Park? You know, I, I think it would have been hard for anyone to envision 100-story needle towers. <laughs> well, that's true. And so, you know, it's it's an abomination. Just, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. You know, this city has done a really bad job of protecting its park landscapes, its, it's visual corridors, its sunlight from oversized buildings. You know, Prospect Park... Look at Prospect Park while it's still there because it's not surrounded by tall buildings. When you're deep in the middle of Prospect Park, you really have the sense for what Olmsted and Vox intended because you don't see the tall buildings. You could be 100 miles away yeah. from New York City. And unfortunately, you've kind of lost that in Central Park because the city allowed 100-story buildings to build, be built along Central Park South. Do you have a favorite spot like
1: Central Park or in Prospect Park and in in Olmstead Park that is really just a place that... You're just continually in awe of his legacy of just like, I can't believe he did, t- built this.
2: So. Yeah, you know, I have several. I can't pick just one. Um, the north woods of Central Park, particularly following the restoration, is magical. You know, the, the stream that courses through there from the pool, and then, you know, once they finish unbuilding the the Lasker Pool and Rink, you'll be able to follow that straight to the lake. It's a magical spot. The long meadow in Prospect Park and the ravine in Prospect Park are the perfection of the homesteading ideal. And people often say, what's the best park in New York City? And with all due deference to Central Park, and my friends at the Central Park Conservancy, it's actually Prospect Park. (laughs) And there's an old joke among parkies, which is, Olmsted and Vaux designed Central Park, learned from their mistakes, and then designed Prospect Park. (laughs) But the reality is not that. It's that there's two different configurations of land in which they had to work. One was a long, narrow rectangle only half a mile wide, so the furthest you ever are from the edge of the city is a quarter mile. In Prospect Park, it's an irregular diamond, and when you're in the middle of the park, you could be a mile from the edge of the city, and there are no tall buildings, so the the illusion of endless space, of the Long Meadow, because of the way that's contoured, it's about a mile long. It feels like it's 15 miles long, because you can actually lose, change your perspective as you walk through the Long Meadow. So I think the Long Meadow and the Ravine. The, the features of Prospect Park are those of Central Park on steroids. They really perfected the illusion of space in Prospect Park. It is true. When you
1: are in the middle of Prospect Park and you can just forget yourself. And I mean, that was, you know, those were the intentions that they've had with these parks.
2: Even though it still needs a little bit of work to restore its landscape, unlike Central Park, which has been beautifully restored. Prospect Park is the apotheosis of the Olmsted and Vaux vision.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's the 200th anniversary uh this month. How is the anniversary being commemorated? What are things people can do and participate in? How is his
2: life being celebrated? So uh, people should just remember the phrase Olmsted 200. You can just Google that and the National Association of Olmsted Parks, which has been around for many years celebrating the work of Olmsted, has spent years preparing for this anniversary, which was slowed down by the pandemic. There are activities in all the cities, particularly here in New York. As we get closer to April 26th, there will be tours, programs in Central Park and Prospect Park. We're going to have an exhibition here at Brooklyn Botanic Garden of panels on our fence facing Flatbush Avenue. So you'll be able to look at Prospect Park across the street and sort of see the history, sort of a it up mm-hmm. <laughs> history of, of Olmsted and Vaux and his work in New York, including Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Have the Olmsted farmhouse in Staten Island, Fort Greene Park, Riverside Park, Prospect Park, Central Park. One of my favorite Olmsted landscapes is also Olmsted Brothers Fort Tryon Park, which is a spectacular oh, yeah. park in, in Washington Heights. Um, uh, that was really also the apothe—I would say the apotheosis of the Olmsted Brothers' work.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate spending time with you. You're showing me this wonderful map, and we'll be here for the 200th anniversary.
2: Great! Happy birthday, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> visit the website
1: olmsted 200org for more information about events across the country although of course one of the best ways to celebrate Olmsted's legacy would just be of course to visit your local public park even if it's designed by him or not and in new york city there's one more place to seek out the original Staten Island farm of Frederick Law Olmsted, Tossamock Farm. Now, of course, the farm itself is gone. They plowed Highland Boulevard through there and, and then, of course, subdivided it for housing. But the original farmhouse is still there. Today, it's called the Olmsted Beale House, as are 1.7 acres with several trees which were planted during Olmsted's tenure at the farm. The city purchased the house in 2006, and in 2020, the house was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. You can't see the bay anymore from the front porch, but you will be in the company of Olmsted's trees, a brilliant patch of green, and an historic place of inspiration. I'd like to thank Adrian Beneppe and the folks at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and Olmsted 200 for their assistance on this week's show. Visit our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, for more images from early park history here in New York. And follow the Barry Boys on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where I'll have some photographs of my trip to Olmsted's old Staten Island farm. Thanks to everyone who supports the Barry Boys on Patreon.com. Your contributions greatly help with the production of the show. They, they paid for my bus fare, for instance, you know, that kind of stuff. So thank you very much. We couldn't really do the day-to-day stuff without your support. And a big thanks to new patrons, Carrie L. from Virginia, Mark W., DMC, A.A. Gill, James H., David S., and Clint from Brooklyn. Thank you for your support. Now over at the Gilded Gentleman Podcast, host Carl Raymond has cooked up some delightful new episodes I think you will enjoy, including a discussion with tour guides Emma Guest Gonzales and Jeff Dobbins on New York's most interesting Gilded Age landmarks that you can still visit today. And next week's new episode features the story of Edith Wharton's secret lover. A saucy subject. Lots of fun going on over there at the Gilded Gentleman. Gentlemen, so subscribe to his show so that you don't miss an episode. Emma, by the way, actually has a marvelous tour for Bowery Boys Walks on Central Park and its landscape. And she's actually doing one this month in time for Olmstead's birthday. So you can book that tour and look for many other interesting adventures through the streets of New York City at BarryboysWalks.com. Next episode Tom returns and he and I are going on a little road trip so pack your bags and join us Thank you very much for listening have a great New York week whether you live here or not
0: The legends are true We're Overwhelming
1: power the Sauce of destiny Yes